you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Future Mac here. We recorded most of this episode some months ago, but in light of recent events, I've added a short preface that we recorded just last week. It's heavily trimmed down from our original preface because we kept getting distracted and we talked about the Crusades for a while. But here's kind of the relevant bits. Alright, so I'm following Saga Thing's example here. And since this is the first time we've recorded since January 6th, Mm -hmm. we should make it clear that as medievalists, all those people who are wearing faux Viking tattoos are and have nothing to do with us and f*** those guys. Ah, yes. Yes, 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 yes. <sighs> wow. I have not looked at the news in so long. I was like, what are you referring to? And then I remembered yeah. where we live. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that QAnon shaman guy was covered in like neo-pagan Viking <sighs> tattoos. And that's, that's like a thing. Ooh. That is like a problem in kind of taints medievalism if we don't speak out against it. A trivia bit that Dr. Hughes occasionally brought up with us in our Old Norse class was that books on Old Norse runes are very popular in prisons because the oh my gosh the Aryan <laughs> gangs use them as uh, tattoo ideas. Oh wow! Did not know that. Yeah, there's wow. a whole like subculture of like white supremacists to borrow medieval or Viking imagery to make themselves feel like they have a connection to some deeper tradition yeah, when most of their yeah. stuff is just made up by, you know, racists from 50 years ago or so. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, the reason I felt I should bring this up was because there have been like in recent years some talk about the fact that medieval like studies is very European dominated, like not just in subject matter, but in the people who do it. Mm hmm. And there are a lot of efforts to make it into a more inclusive community, so I feel like we have to call that out. And now, back to our previously scheduled material, which, as you may recall, is a continuation of the second part of our reading of the Gesta Romanorum. Thank you. Okay, I'll just go to the next one. Tale number 20, entitled... Of tribulation and anguish. Ooh. In the reign of the Emperor Conrad. I'm going to assume this is a Holy Roman Emperor. Okay. I, I haven't checked to see if there is a Holy Roman Emperor named Conrad, but I think that's the only place you'd find one. Is it spelled with a C? Yep. Oh, okay, here we go. Conrad II, Holy Roman Emperor in 1027. So if there was a Conrad II, there must be a Conrad I. Yeah, one of the things that this collection of Roman stories, quote, Roman, <laughs> really drives home is that the current idea of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire being three separate things is very modern. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because as far as the medieval period was concerned, they're all the same thing. That's true. Let's see if I can find the first one. Yeah, there are also a couple stories, I don't know if we've come across one yet, where they say in the reign of the emperor or whatever, and it's a it's a Byzantine emperor with a Greek name. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, here's the Conrad the First, or King of East Francia, in 900. Huh, interesting. Alright, so, there was an Emperor Conrad, and in his reign, there lived a certain count. 
called Leopold. Okay. Who, for some cause, fearing the indignation of his master, we don't know what cause or why he'd be indignant, but for some cause, fled with his wife into the woods and concealed himself in a miserable hovel. Okay. By chance, the emperor hunted there. This just seems badly planned. I mean, I'm not 100% sure that the Emperor Conrad is meant to be the master of Count Leopold that they're talking about, because I feel like there are levels between Count and Emperor. That's true. Okay, but still, you don't want to go hiding in the royal woods. No, but anyway, Emperor Conrad, being carried away by the heat of the chase, lost himself in the woods and was benighted. And this phenomenon comes up a lot in folklore uh, of the king just getting lost whenever they leave their castle. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) To such an extent that one of my other favorite podcasts, What the Folklore, refers to it as leaving the royalty playpen. Leaving the royalty playpen. That's fantastic. That's so true. Yeah, they seem to have no way of surviving once they're outside of of their own court. Which historically is incorrect. I mean, kings went off and fought in battles. They knew their way around. I mean, occasionally I figured you'd have, like, a very stupid king who wouldn't be able to. I mean, you have Roman emperors who never left court and then were assassinated by the guard. So, you know, it happens, but it's it's more a folklore thing than anything else. Yeah. I was going to say it was because maybe the peasants who tell these stories are thinking of the king as just being like an upgraded version of their own local lord. But I guess the lords would also be running off and going into battles. So That's true, but the peasants themselves wouldn't. So maybe maybe it's a reflection of that. It's like, oh, well, I've never gone more than three miles outside of my hometown, so I would get lost. So if the king tries to go hunting in these big, big woods, he would get lost too. <laughs> or maybe they're, they've noticed that they're much more adept at navigating the local wilderness than their bosses. And so they just assume that noblemen don't know how to do that sort of thing. Also true. See, but it, would that be the case? Because, like, rangers weren't really a thing as we think about them in, like, D&D. And you had people who hunted. Yeah. But your common villager wouldn't really go anywhere or do anything like that. No, but they'd go hunt. They'd go into the woods to collect lumber or food. That's true. That's true. But if the noblemen go on a hunt, it's in a big group. Yeah, yeah, they've got their whole entourage, so if they get separate, then they get lost. Fair enough. Yeah, like, I'd be unsurprised to learn that that happened often enough that it became, like, just common peasant wisdom that noblemen get lost in the woods if they don't have people watching them. They are like kids, aren't they? Oh, man. But anyway, the emperor's lost in the woods. Okay. Wandering about in various directions, he came at length to the cottage where the count dwelt. Note that it's upgraded from a hovel to a cottage. I feel like those are wildly different things. Those are wildly different things. That, that makes a lot more sense, though, because if if you take your lady into the woods, you're going to go to your summer house. You're not going to go live in a hovel. That makes more sense as to why they're living in this area. It's it's like a cottage in the forest versus cabin in the woods. It, it both means like a small dwelling, but very different connotations. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anyway, he comes to the cottage and requests shelter. Now, his hostess being at that time pregnant, and near the moment of her travail... Okay. (laughs) ...prepared, though with some difficulty, a meal. Oh, Oh, poor lady. (laughs) Well, I mean, if the emperor shows up at your cottage, you're not going to say, like, I'm sorry, I'm too pregnant to cook. Like, I'm going to give it a try. Yeah, fair enough. But poor lady. (laughs) But it doesn't sound pleasant. 
Like, you'd think if he were actually chivalrous, he'd help her out in the kitchen, but, you know. I mean, I don't think you have to be chivalrous towards people who live in cottages if you're an emperor. That's true. She prepared a meal with some difficulty and brought whatever he required. The same night, she was delivered of a son. Oh, so she was very near her travail. Yes, she was extremely pregnant. Oh, wow. Okay. While the emperor slept, a voice broke upon his ear, which seemed to say, Take. 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 No! Oh, no. It is really a shame that the the listeners can't (laughs) see the faces you made. Oh, my gosh. Also, I just assume that the little voice saying, Take, 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 is in every ruler's ear, because that explains their general behavior. That's true. That's very fair. Human nature, man. The emperor arose immediately, and with considerable alarm, said to himself, What can that voice mean? Take, take, take. What am I to take? He reflected upon the singularity of this for a short space, and then fell asleep. (laughs) Street smarts. That is the correct answer. (laughs) Like, that was weird. Back to sleep. Back to sleep. That is that is the only correct. I think that is the first instance we've seen of someone encountering something very very strange and just being like, eh, whatever. <laughs> like the talking deer guy, he listens to the talking deer. Don't listen to the talking deer. No. But no. this guy, he hears a strange voice in the night, and he's like, eh, whatever. Not my concern. This cottage might be haunted. I don't live here. <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> okay. But a second time, the voice addressed him. No! You were doing so well! (laughs) Restore! 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 Weird, okay. He awoke in very great sorrow. What is all this? Thought he. First, I was to take, 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 and there is nothing for me to take. Just now the same voice exclaimed, Restore, restore, restore. And what can I restore when I have taken nothing? Okay, I'm I'm getting a little wigged out by this now. Like, this is weird. Unable to explain the mystery, he again slept. Okay, still a good still a good policy. And the third time the voice spoke. Fly, 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 it said, for a child is now born who shall become thy son-in-law. I don't see the connection between those two things either. Like fly as in flee from that place? As that's the only way I can interpret it, yeah. And why is that a bad thing if he's going to be your son-in-law? I don't know. Okay, this is a weird story. It is. These words created great perplexity in the emperor. No kidding, I'm sitting here thinking the same thing. And getting up very early in the morning, he sought out two of his squires and said, What do you think he said to the squires? I want to hear your guess. Pack up and let's go home, because this place is haunted and this is not a good idea. See, that would have been the sensible thing to say. Oh, no, he was doing so well as the sensible man in this story. Wait, also, he got lost when he brings his squires with him? So it's like him and his little entourage of squires? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I also don't know, like, why why none of them know how to get home. Yeah. Or if they've actually figured out where where they are yet. Hmm, okay. What he says to his squires is, Go and force away that child from its mother. Cleave it in twain and bring its heart to me. And now we're back into the more predictable folklore. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Take the kid and kill it because I don't want it to be my son-in-law. For whatever reason. 
the terrified squires obeyed. <laughs> I like that the the story acknowledges that this is a frightening thing to be ordered to do. I would be terrified. And snatched away the child as it hung at its mother's breast. No! But observing its very great beauty, I assume the child, not the breast, they were moved... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make a comment on that one. Keep going. (laughs) They were moved to compassion and placed it upon the branch of a tree to rescue it from the wild beasts. Okay. All right. Okay. I've got this baby. Let's just set him up here. (laughs) You can handle yourself from here, can't you, kid? (laughs) Can't you, kid? You're almost a whole day old. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. All right. And then, killing a hare, they conveyed its heart to the emperor. That makes more sense. I was, yes. I was waiting to see what, what they were going to use. This is another thing that comes up a lot in what the folklore, where they speculate that princesses must all have barcodes under their tongues, and that's why they all people always demand that part be brought to them as proof oh of death. Oh my gosh, their tongues. I like it. Because, yeah, you know, that's Snow White. Bring me her, her heart and her tongue. And, the, and he's like, it's a deer tongue. I was going to say, I was going to say, this, this connects to Snow White. Yeah, Snow White, I think, is heart and tongue. That's, I think that's the standard. Yeah, and then same thing for, well, this it aligns with the story of Moses, because they were supposed to kill all the kids, mm-hmm. but they sent Moses in the basket. And then it also aligns with Joseph when his brothers were going to kill oh, him. Oh, that Joseph. Yes. His brothers were going to kill him, and they stained the coat, but instead they sold him off into slavery. Mm-hmm. And then Romulus and Remus, to a certain point. Yeah. Because they were raised by the she-wolf, because they were abandoned, because they were ordered to be killed as well. But there are a lot of connections here. There's a lot of folklore connections. Yeah. Soon after this, skips ahead, it doesn't tell us how the emperor reacts when they hand him a heart. I assume he's pretty satisfied with this. Yum. Ugh. I mean, that would also be par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> Given, oh, who, who, what was the Greek god? It was Uranus, wasn't it? Cronos is the one who ate Kronos. his children. That's right, Cronos. Soon after this, a duke traveling in the forest passed by, and hearing the cry of an infant, searched about, and discovering it, placed it, unknown to anyone, in the folds of his garment. Aw, all right. Maybe this is not how you're supposed to envision it, but I can't read that without just thinking of him going, I'm just going to put this in my pocket. <laughs> that also works. Uh, do, 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 do. You now have a baby. (laughs) Your inventory is full. (laughs) Having no child himself, he conveyed it to his wife, bade her to nourish it as her own, and gave it the name of Henry. All right. What I'm still confused about this is how the squires take it from the mother. They decide they're doing a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Instead of just handing it back to the mother, they put it in a tree. Presumably the king is still in the house. And the mother doesn't go looking for it. Maybe she did. Or if she does, somehow the duke beats her there. Yeah. Which would make this a very crowded forest. It is. It, how did he get lost? We're just we're coming back to the fact that how did he get lost in this forest in the first place? But it does work. I will say it does work for the heroic biography. Because, again, in the heroic biography, this happens to Cucullin. This happens to Romulus and Remus. I mean, it happens to Snow White. It's happening to... Henry, this kid, the child has to escape death as an infant and then go out into exile and be effectively exiled 
and brought mm-hmm. up outside of society before coming back and claiming the throne. So I'm excited to see where this goes. The boy grew up, handsome in person and extremely eloquent. Oh. So that he became a general favorite, of whom nobody knows. Now, the emperor, remarking on the extraordinary quickness of the youth, desired his foster father to send him to court, where he resided a length of time. Okay. So the emperor is like, hey, Duke, you got a great kid there. How about I foster him for a bit? And the Duke's like, great, that's really prestigious here. That's a good gig. But the great estimation in which he was held by all ranks of people caused the emperor to repent what he had done and to fear lest he should aspire to the throne. Or probably be the same whom, as the child, he had commanded his squires to destroy. Ooh. It's wild that he even has that thought because it's like that was over a decade ago now. Yeah. Why are you going to assume that this kid is the same one? Because it's a trope. We know the story. (laughs) And so does the king, fourth wall break. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe the maybe Emperor Conrad is just very genre savvy. <laughs> He's like, I'm I'm in a folktale. I know how this works. I know how this works. I did the wrong thing. Wishing to secure himself from every possible turn of fortune, he wrote a letter with his own hand to the queen of the following purport. I command you, on pain of death, as soon as this letter reaches you, to put the young man to death. He's making the queen do this? <laughs> What a weak-willed man. Also, just the layers of, like, how messed up this is. Like, first, he's making his wife do it. Second, he's not even going to tell her in person. He's sending her a letter. Right? Third, he's threatening that if she doesn't do it, he'll kill her. Pain of death? I have so many issues, but this is a bad man. Yes. When it was completed, he went by some accident into a church. I like how... It's always an accident. These guys never mean to go into church. I think he got lost again. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Where can I go where I can see what I need to see? Oh, look, that building has a tower. I'll climb that. Oh, it's a church. (laughs) Funny that. Now, as you do in a church, seating himself upon a bench, he fell asleep. Very much in church, yes. I meant that to be sarcastic, but like as soon as I said that, I'm like, no, people sleep in church all the time. People do sleep in church. The letter had been enclosed in a purse, which hung loosely from his girdle, and a certain priest of the place, impelled by an ungovernable curiosity, opened the purse and read the purposed wickedness. There's a lot of immoral things going on in this kingdom. <laughs> like Who sees the, the emperor and is like, like, I'm gonna pickpocket this guy. Let's see what's in his purse. There's a letter. Let's read it. Let's, Let's read open the king's his mail. <laughs> Look, how did you get into the priesthood, man? Uh, well, I'll tell you how. <laughs> <laughs> Rampant corruption? Yes. Oh, no. This is a bad kingdom. Yes. Filled with horror and indignation, he cunningly erased the passage commanding the youth's death and wrote instead, Give him our daughter in marriage. What was it written in pencil? <laughs> I t- I mean, maybe he did, like, the ink scraper thing. I guess, but you you can still tell. This is another trope in folklore, though, is that they do, like, just take bits out of letters and put other bits in. And it makes you wonder, like, what are they writing with? What are they writing with? Don't know. Or, or if they're just scratching it out and rewriting it, wouldn't you realize it's a different hand? Do people just not check? Was this being read to the queen? 
Does the queen not recognize her husband's hand? And then also, like, as far as folktales go, this is a weird folktale because there's so many unnecessary layers. Yes. Like, you have Snow White, which makes sense. It's like, okay, I want to kill the princess and the queen's the evil queen and the huntsman takes pity on her and so she's raised by dwarves and then blah, blah, blah. Like, that makes sense. Rapunzel makes sense. Like, the Disney Rapunzel movie, that makes sense. But in this one, there's, like, so many layers. There's so many layers. It's particularly wild that they basically have decided that this boy needs to be of legitimate noble birth. And so they introduced that bit about a count hiding in the forest at the beginning. Yeah, for no other reason. Yeah. Like, why does he have to be... just so the boy's not a peasant. For shame. (laughs) Ah, this hurts my head. There's so many layers. (laughs) And this is not like the good kind of ogres have layers onion thing. From Shrek. Like, this is not a parfait. This is like... Everybody likes parfaits. Everybody likes parfaits. Like, no, there's... It's just... It's like... It's like a scalloped potato dish where there's just too much potato. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know what to do with that simile. It's not a very good one. That's the only one I could think of. There's too many layers. And there's too much starch. What makes a story starchy? The fact that it's very... Like... There's, there's so many layers, but it's the same thing every time. Ah. Like, we don't have layers of cheese. There's no layer of, like, extra spices. There's no cream. It's just potato, 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 potato. So this is a Midwestern dish. Yes. That is my conclusion. Again, <laughs> if anyone else is currently living in the Midwest, I am sorry that you have to live in the Midwest. Sad days. Anyway, after that horrible simile. The writing was conveyed to the queen, who... Finding the emperor's signature and the impression of the royal signet, called together the princes of the empire and celebrated their nuptials with great pomp. Okay, and where is the king at this time? When this was communicated to the emperor, he was greatly afflicted. Oh no. But when he heard the whole chain of miraculous interposition from the two squires, the duke and the priest, he saw that he must resign himself to the dispensations of God. And therefore... Sending for the young man, he confirmed his marriage and appointed him heir to his kingdom. You could have done that in the first place, you dimwit. Right. Why do we have this entire story? The whole the whole thing was like, this, this voice tells you that this is your future son-in-law. I mean, I think part of it is just the old, like, classical trope of you can't fight prophecy. Like, if the fates say this is gonna be, it's gonna be. It's gonna be, for sure. But this is a really bad way of telling that story. In my opinion, as far as folktales go, this is poorly done. No, this is no Sophocles. Ugh. We do have a footnote at the end. Okay. This story is told by Caxton in The Golden Legend. Last time I read from the Gesta Romanorum, I referred to Caxton's Golden Legend. Okay. Incorrect, both on my part and somewhat on the part of the translator, I'm going to say, because Caxton is not the author of the Golden Legend. He was the printer who first published it in English. Oh, interesting. But this story is told under the life of Pelagian the Pope, entitled, Here followeth the life of St. Pelagian the Pope, with many other histories and guesties of the Lombards and of Muhammad, or possibly Machomit. I assume it's supposed to be Muhammad, but is spelled weird. That would make sense. With other chronicles. With other chronicles. The Gesto Longobadorum are fertile in legendary matter, and furnished Jacobus de Voragine 
Div Jacob D. Voragine. <laughs> That's a beautiful American pronunciation there. Anyone who can figure out who that meant from my Americanized pronunciation. I couldn't even get that. Know. I did not follow that one. Caxton's original with many marvelous histories. Caxton, from the Gestus of the Lombardus, the Deeds of the Lombards, gives a wonderful account of a pestilence in Italy under the reign of King Gilbert. The Golden Legend enters somewhat into the life of the Emperor Henry after he came to the throne. Amongst other matters, he put out of his country all the jugglers and gave to poor people all that was wont to be given to minstrels. I feel like this footnote kind of loses the thread. Yeah, I was gonna say, I am not quite following what that has to do with this story. No, not at all. I have no idea. Huh. Okay. Actually, I think this was just the translator get, losing track of what he was saying, because it starts out going like, this story is in the Golden Legend, under the life of Pelagian the Pope. Oh, and the title also mentions the Lombards. You know, the, the deeds of the Lombards are fertile in legendary matters. Caxton talks about a pestilence in Italy in his <laughs> deeds of the Lombards. <laughs> Here's everything we know about the deeds of the Longbards. Okay. All right. But it's possible, I guess, if I'm reading this footnote correctly, that the boy who was found in the forest is supposed to be Pelagian the Pope. Henry? You're right. Disregard that. That's okay. There we go. I'm back on track now. Sorry. I forgot he got a name. All right. So this is the story of the Emperor Henry. Okay. Yeah. And that's why we're told this at the end, that the Golden Legend, when it tells this story, talks about how Henry, later in his life, exiles all the jugglers. Oh! So Henry didn't like jugglers. I guess not. Okay, that seems like a very strange footnote to put in, but noted. Yeah. Huh. Was this Conrad's son, is what I want to know. Like, I want to know, who's his son? Okay, well, the predecessor of Conrad II was Henry II, and the successor of Conrad II was Henry III, so that checks out. Yeah, presumably this is Henry III. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so this is Henry III. Huh. Henry III of the Holy Roman Empire. However, according to Wikipedia, Henry III was in fact Conrad's actual son. Interesting. Did he outlaw jugglers? That's a good question. I feel like this is vital information. If he was a very important religious man, then that, I mean, that would make sense as to why he would get rid of, what, jugglers? Yeah. So that would, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. If, if God wanted those items to move around in the air in circles, he would have made them do it himself. Yes, obviously. It is particularly in defiance of divine will to juggle chainsaws. <laughs> I think this might have to be something we come back to I later. I think so. Yeah, I can't find anything. Ah, all right. Mac here. I was able to find a copy of Caxton's version of the Golden Legend and look up what exactly it said under the stuff about Pope Pelagian, and I have discovered. One, the story we have just told doesn't seem to have anything to do with Pope Pelagian. It's just in the same, like, chapter. Two, he does make it clear that he's talking about Henry III, but I can't find anything except the golden legend that talks about Henry III banning jugglers and minstrels. 
Also, Caxton actually uses the word jongleurs rather than jugglers, which I think is a more broad term. But what do I know? It's French. So if anyone does know more about Henry III and his like or dislike of minstrels, let us know. Thank you. So that's three stories. Three stories, indeed. There's some good ones in there. All right, let's jump into our segments then. What say you? Best dialogue is just the outstretched lie of, honey, I shit a crow. <laughs> like, that's so far out there. That's so far out there. I really want to know who comes up with something like that. Well, it's gotta be so bizarre, you know? Yeah. Like, will my wife really not say this? It's like, of course she won't, because she knows it's a joke. <laughs> oh. I mean, honestly, if I told someone I a live crow that then flew away, I would expect them to, if they believed me, immediately consult, honestly, probably the local witch, given what kind of circles I, I move in. Fair enough. Yeah. Like, I would be very concerned that someone had cursed my husband. Mm. But that, that is my favorite dialogue. It's pretty great. I do enjoy the emperor freaking out about hearing voices in the night and going like, what does this mean? Take, take, take. What? what? <laughs> I'm going back to bed. I'm going back to bed. Oh, no. Smart man. Well, to a point. Yeah, he, he he loses it eventually. Yeah. Also, note that that count did never again come up. Yeah. He only existed to establish that this was a child of noble birth. I, yeah, I have so many issues with the story. <laughs> I love it, but so many issues. Okay. Use in D&D games. Let's jump into that. I feel like there's a lot here. I feel like here. there's a lot we can do here. I'm going to start by saying, what happens if you have a peasant tell your players in all seriousness, yesterday I f***ed a crow. <laughs> can you help me? Can you help me? Oh, no. Fetch quest. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what? You have to go find the crow? No, you have to go find a witch to help him. Oh. <laughs> I think that would be hilarious. No, it would be even better if it was his wife. Because then then it's got to be a secret still. So it's, yes. can the players keep a secret about this poor guy? <laughs> it's like, we need, a, we need a healer. We need a cleric. Uh, for what? Um, you know, just a bad, bad pot of stew. There's yeah. feathers involved. <laughs> yeah, I would really want to see how they go about, like, trying to figure out who could possibly help with this problem and what they're supposed to do about it without telling people what it is. I, lo I love that. I love or, that. Or, alternately, make one of your players a crow. I was going to say that is the other obvious <laughs> choice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, man. You will have to come up with some sort of explanation for why. You can't just leave it hanging there. That's true. That's true. But we will leave that to you to come up with. Yes. I think definitely... For the second story, definitely having a threshold guardian, some sort of phantom in a river, would be yeah, a lot good. of fun. And that can either be that can be a challenge, like if you cross this river, it has to be for the good of the kingdom, or mm -hmm. like even even a battle encounter. You know, yeah, you can make that happen. And there wasn't a lot of description, so make the phantom as you see fit. And, you know, it definitely shouldn't attack right off. That's not what a Threshold Guardian does. There should be a, a moment of negotiation. True. Like, 
why do you need to get across? Why should I let you across? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Have your players look at their own morals, look at their own reasons, the reasons for going into whatever space they're going into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What else? You can use those three basic colors for something. Symbolism in yeah. the three basic colors. That's a very general yeah, one. I like the idea of in some place where the players should think they're safe to just sleep, have like a priest or someone go through their stuff. Yes. Yes, the pickpocket priest. Or have them discover something, like a message in transit. Like it doesn't matter how they find it. Figure out a way Mm -hmm. that says something like, my queen, you must kill this child. Yes. And they have to decide how to deal with that. Yes, if they do anything about it. Yeah. Do they choose to kill the kid? Do they not kill the kid? That's a good one. That's a really good one. I also like the idea, like, just as a funny little NPC, if you do include the pickpocket priest, that priest does not steal anything valuable. Mm -mm. Just really stupid stuff. Yeah. Mostly he's just curious. He wants to see what you've got. Yeah. And then outlawing jugglers, outlawing bards. I'm just throwing Mm -hmm. that one out there. And you can always have a creepy voice saying... Take, restore, and fly. Yes. That's always on the table for whatever your needs are, particularly for someone who is not already aligned with a god. Mm-hmm. Just throw that in, make them deal with it. Do they go back to bed? Do they try and kill somebody? Play around with it. And of course, if they do go back to bed, then you you can just not pick it up again. And if they ever ask you, like, you don't know. You don't like, know. You didn't follow that up. Yeah. <laughs> or every, every couple sessions. You know, intermittent nightmares, intermittent voices. Good options all the way around. Okay. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and accents yet unknown. Echoes in modern culture. I feel like we already covered Snow White. We talked about Snow White. So we see that we still see that. We still see these ideas of the hero as a child almost being killed and then coming back to restore the kingdom. It's a very, very, very old trope. We also talked about national myth-making for the second one. That's true. That's true. So I think I think we've covered that. Yeah. Who do we want for our D&D party here? I want the priest. I think the, the priest needs to be in the party. He's a perfect rogue. Yeah. And he's a key. He could be a cleric, you know, multi-classing. I feel this is almost a cop-out answer, but Caesar... 100% Caesar. Caesar can definitely be in the party. Mm-hmm. Who else do we have? The crow. <laughs> What's the crow going to do in the party? Don't know. What about Henry? All right, yeah, that makes sense. And we're not, like, there's not really anyone else, is there? I mean, some of the minor characters in that last story, maybe. Because, like, you got to respect the squires for almost doing the right thing. They did put the baby in a tree. True. And you've got to respect Henry's mother for putting the effort into wading hand and foot on an emperor while she is extremely pregnant, just because that's the hospitable thing to do. Ah, that poor woman. And she just, she didn't have a kid for the rest of her, like, ugh. Because the Duke picked her up. just completely out of the story. Aw, that's so sad. Yeah, I still want to know, like, the child, the Duke found the kid because the kid was crying. Right. Why didn't the mother find the kid? Presumably she was closer. 
Presumably. Unless it was like, they got on the road and they're like, we have to kill this kid. And they were far enough away from the house and the duke rides up. I'm just imagining them going, no, you're right. You're right. We shouldn't kill the kid. But like, do we really want to go all the way back? (laughs) (laughs) Can we just leave him in a tree? Like, it's already almost sundown and we have to pick a place to camp. And, oh, (laughs) I don't want to have another level of exhaustion. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, that's all I Okay. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Any terms in this one? Mm. I did get a phrase that I really liked, which was possessing oneself of distant fortresses. That is good. That is a great phrase. I did phrase. like that phrase. You can have a, a dictate from the king to go and possess yourself of this fortress. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. This distant fortress. This distant fortress. What else? There's also the word benighted. Because you said he, the king was benighted when he was yes, in the forest. Yes, he was lost and benighted. Yeah, lost and benighted. So that's a great word to use. Or travails. Travails is also another good word. As just a synonym for childbirth or labor. Yeah. Near the moment of her travail. Travails. All right. Street smarts! Lessons from the text. We covered the crow. See your nearby shaman, priest, witch, witch whatever. All of you, whatever your preferred spiritual helper is, go there. If you hear voices in the night, ignore them. Ignore them. Continue to ignore them. Again, like mm-hmm. once again, if the voice does not name itself or show itself to you, don't listen to it. Because yeah. the phantom questioned Caesar, and that turned out okay, because it's a threshold guardian. So know your guardians. Yes. Know your local guardians. Know your local nature spirits, but if a voice comes to you in the middle of the night, do not listen to it. Just don't. Or if you do, don't do something stupid. Because, like, if someone says, oh yeah, that's going to be your son-in-law, especially if it's a voice in the middle of the night, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. It can be a good thing. A, if you hear mysterious voices in the night, there's no reason to trust what they have to say. They have not shown their credentials. Yes. B, if they give you information... Maybe talk to someone else before you decide how to act on that. Yes. Give it 24 hours. Yeah. Give it 24 hours. Also, just so you know, apparently emperors cannot tell the difference between rabbits' hearts and babies' hearts. In case that ever comes up. Good to know. Very good to know. Practical. Practical advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that that's relevant all the time. Yes. Like, how often has an emperor asked you for a baby's heart and you didn't know what to bring him because you didn't want to... Take the heart out of a baby. Now you know. Now you know. Rabbits. They're smart, so small enough, you know? Okay. Best moment. For me, this is 100% when the king just goes back to bed. <laughs> that was pretty good. 100%. That's my favorite moment in this in, in these stories. He's like, huh, that's weird. I'm going to go back to bed. Yeah. We were really rooting for you here, king. <laughs> Come on, Conrad. Let's see, I'm trying to think if there's anything that beats that. No, everything else I can come up with is one of our fabrications. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's pretty straightforward. The court. And you get to go first. Oh, boy. I mean, let's see. I could pick Caesar, which is pretty badass. You could pick Caesar. But I also really like Henry. But I'm going to go with Caesar. Even though he has a horrible death, he did a lot more than Henry II did. Because you've got, you've got like the entire Roman Empire, and then you've that got true. the Holy Roman Empire. So I suppose that gives you my, my impressions of the Roman Empire versus the Holy Roman Empire. I'm going to go with Caesar. 
Oh. That is a shame, because that is who I was planning to pick. I was sure you were going to miss that. You could pick Pompey. I'm honestly, seriously, cons- you, you know what? There I am go. picking Runner Pompey. Up. I want Pompey. I mean, two great Roman leaders. Yeah. What is that? That's two-thirds of the triumvirate, so. Yeah. Along with the other guy everyone always forgets. And I am currently forgetting now. Yeah. So was he really that important? The answer is no. <laughs> I think his name started with an L. I don't know. I don't remember. Final rating. So we are we going to do, we're going to do each one of these. Yeah. Okay. So 125 of women who not only betray secrets, but lie fearfully. Fearfully. <laughs> This one is just so ridiculous and fun, and it's so short. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic, and then it then it just throws me with this whole like Parson thing. Yeah, and the letters that he learns. The random letters are these like actual letters, like A B C, or are these like? I mean, I have to assume, right? Well, because there's also like oh, like oh, you're doing your letters, like you're doing the alphabet, or there's oh, you're writing letters, like you're writing script, or there's like oh, the letters of X Y Z. So like if you're learning letters, it could be like the letters of Cicero or of a po- or like a priest or something. So it could be like tracks. It could be that's true. Either way, I was assuming it was part of the overall like fixation on literacy because you know the like with the letters on the hand. Oh. Where they just assume, like, you know, you you learn three distinct letters. I, that's probably closest, to be honest. Which ones? We don't know. We don't know. I wonder- Probably there was a W. Future Mac here. Past Mac is a fool for guessing W. He should be ashamed of himself, and he knows why. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if they're Greek. Ah, uh, that would make more sense. Like the Cairo... That's two letters. I know, but it's one symbol. It is one symbol. And then you've got, like, the fish and stuff. I don't know. That'd be interesting. Okay, for 125, I'm going to give it a six. I am... Honestly, I can't get over the ridiculousness of the crow, so I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. It's just something about... Something about that. I can't stop laughing every time I think of it. That's wild. Oh, like, wouldn't she, she would have noticed Yeah, the night previous, too. It's like, oh, he's been out there for half an hour. I think what really makes it is that the crow flies away afterwards. <laughs> so ridiculous. Oh, oh, man. Okay, number 19, of sin and pride. Yeah, that's, yeah, Caesar and Pompey. I really like this one, and I really like that it has a threshold guardian. So I'm going to give this one an 8. It's simple, it's to the point, it's... Almost factual, and I like how they romanticize the Roman history of it, so I'm giving this one an 8. I'm not quite as impressed. I I like how it kind of provides an example of how much history can change in the retelling, and how mm-hmm. we can apply that to the kind of... Well, the kind of medievalism. Well, that too. Yeah, I, well, because this is, I guess this is the Romanism of the medievals. Yeah. Like, looking back on Rome. Yeah, it can also further apply to, like, stuff we know about history just in the modern world. Like, where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I've heard that. It's probably true. And it's maybe not something that has a lot of backing. And so stories like like the cherry tree, like you brought up earlier, just kind of get Mm -hmm. burned into into our cultural consciousness. And I think seeing how historical stories can change in the retelling does kind of help us reinforce that. And I've talked myself up, so I'm giving it a... 
6.5, because I was going to okay. get that lower. And then number 20 of Tribulation <sighs> and Anguish. This one, I just... I enjoyed this? Question mark? <laughs> but again, like, I keep coming back to the scallop potatoes. Right. Like, the, the characterization of this story is, like, it has everything that you need for it to be a decent folktale, and then it just pushes more in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't need this stuff. Like, again, like, you don't need the Duke no. at the very beginning. Like, okay, that's totally unnecessary. Like, you just put that in there to make him a noble, which is like, oh, that kind of ruins the whole pauper to king sort of idea. And see, you've, you've just illustrated why this detail is unnecessary, because you've got the Count and the Duke confused. Oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> oh No, no, I... Uh, this one gets a four. <laughs> I'm frustrated with this story. That's fair. I liked it a bit more. I'm going to give it a six. Okay. I like the unnecessary details. I feel it gives it texture. Oh, it does. It's hilarious. It also frustrates me. It gets, like, it's every pet peeve of storytelling for me. Characters just drop off the face of the earth. Yeah. That is bizarre. But it's a great story. That's what I love about this, is that all the stories that we're reading are are fantastic. So in large part, these stories don't need ratings. They're all fantastic, and you should read all of them. Yeah, I've noticed that kind of the general thrust in most podcasts that read and rate stories is that all almost all of the stories get above average ratings. Cause, oh, yeah. yeah. They're fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Shall we jump over to the Leech's Corner? We shall. Do you have something this time, or should I? Welcome. The Leech's Corner. So I thought we would go back and look at two of the things in the Leech book that you brought up. I think last time or the time before. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit less of reading something directly out of the Leech book. And it's actually going to be something more secondhand commentary uh, and secondary sources on what we talked about in the leech book. So we did, which one did we do? There was the headache one that had the head of the dog. Yeah, I think that was the first one we did. And then what was the other one? Oh, oh, the one we did last time with the ear of barley. Yes, the ear of barley. Okay, so given that these ideas and given that it's very, it's tricky to understand what they were talking about in a lot of these, I've got two different articles. Mm -hmm. They're both fantastic. The first one is called Anglo-Saxon Medicine and Magic, and it's by M.L. Cameron, and this was published in 1988, and it's a fairly expansive article, actually. And the second one is by several individuals. It's called A Reassessment of the Efficacy of Anglo-Saxon Medicine Mm -hmm. by Barbara Berenisel, Michael D.C. Drought, who has an excellent class on uh, the history of the English language. So shout out to him because he does a fantastic job with Old English. He came and gave a talk about philology at my undergrad, and that was what brought me into this field. Oh, that's so cool. He did a great course as well on the history of Old English that I listened to in high school, and I was just so enamored with it. So shout out to Professor Drought. Mm. We love you. And also Robin Gravel did this article as well. So the first one is very, very interesting. The second one is more modern. It doesn't... I don't have when it was published, but it's fairly recent. It's within the last 10 years or so. But the Anglo-Saxon Medicine and Magic by Cameron, Cameron's article goes through and he's trying to make a justification or make an argument for the idea that these remedies would 
actually have worked. They weren't all just charms and psychosomatic and in your head. They definitely have elements of that. And we've seen like magical charms being written and and said out loud. But he's trying to make an argument that there's actually a lot more medicine than there is magic in Bald's Leech book. This is the point we've been making too, is that like, clearly they know some stuff. Yes, they do. Okay. There are three remedies in the Medicina di Quadruple. Pettibus. That's the one I mentioned, this like the separate volume yes. that's for animal medicine. Yes, that calls for the ashes of burned dog's head for a cancerous wound. But Cameron argues that this is the, a different meaning than is what is meant by hound's head in the leech book, because that could refer to a plant that's known as hound's head. I remember that you suggested that when we read it, and I was skeptical because I was like, well, Cocaine doesn't seem to think so, and he's our translator, but... Right, but there is an argument for it here. And then... Okay, so there's one cure for a sty on your eyelid, Mm -hmm. which was, he says it's probably an infection of the hair follicle, that makes sense, it happens, and the ingredients for the salve were onion, onion garlic... Ball's gall, which is like the inner intestinal liquid of a bull, wine, and copper salts. And copper salts are produced in a brass vessel. So by themselves, onion and garlic are antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Garlic juice inhibits growth of staph, so that helps with staph infections. Ox gall also has detergent properties, which could work on bacteria and can be used as an antibiotic. And so he makes the argument that when you combine these, you're combining all these naturally antibiotic healing properties of these plants and you're putting them together. Mm -hmm. And so it would be much, much more effective. And putting them into the brass or or making copper salts and using a brass vessel would increase oxidation. So there's no, he's arguing that there's no mystification of using a brass vessel and covering it and leaving it out. So that's his argument for that. And then... Now, of course, to what degree the leech themselves would know any of this is up for debate. Right. And the the leech doesn't necessarily need to know it. He just needs to know it would be effective. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you, if you know that using garlic helps, you don't really question it. You just use it, especially if you don't have the science to understand why it works. No. Like, probably someone at some point figured this out, either through trial and error or through their own experiments in natural philosophy with playing with copper and brass, and they just wrote it down, and everyone was like, that sounds good, it seems to work, we're keeping it. They don't need to know why it works, they just know it does. Right. So there's another section talking about that ear of barley that we talked about, and it says that the charm is Anglo-Saxon in origin, since only in Old English... Quote, only in Old English, there is homonymy. Ear of barley and ear of person are the same word. Are the same word, which we still have in modern English. Its effectiveness might be expected to lie in the similarity of names, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we were talking about last time. Yeah. But Cameron makes the argument that, quote, the sudden startle caused by the thrusting of barley in the ear secretly to the patient's ear would almost certainly bring about the fight or flight reaction of adrenaline with consequent constriction of peripheral blood vessels, which would stop the bleeding. That's amazing. Because one of the things that had always just completely floored me about that particular remedy is that you're supposed to, like, sneak up on the patient. 
And he's actually figured out a reason why that would be... Medically useful. Yeah! You induce a flight-or-flight response. (laughs) Go figure. Do make sure you've got the right patient, though. Yeah. So that's what Cameron argues for some of these spells. Now, what's really, really, really interesting is that Drought et al. decided to test some of these ideas out. Mm Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed reading this article. It's such a laugh to go through. So basically what they did was historico-pharmacology. All right, so I have not read the drought article yet. Did they test the ear of barley one? I don't think they tested the ear of barley one, but they did They did test the copper, the copper one mm-hmm. with the copper bowl. So they talk about the types of garlic that there is and how they you know, decide to figure out what to use. And they note that the, the Anglo-Saxon recipe has to be interpreted first. You have to figure out what they actually mean by all these plants. Yeah. Because the Old English, when it says garlic and onion, that's a translation because the word could mean garlic and garlic. It could be leek and garlic, so on and so forth. So they had to pick the right plants. So they use several different types of plants. And they do acknowledge, quote, we are not using the same vegetables as the Anglo-Saxon physician. On the other hand, the presumed antibiotic activity of the onion, garlic, and leek should not significantly differ from most varieties. We therefore chose to use organic garlic, onions, and leeks so that the plants were not contaminated with pesticides or fertilizers that might confuse our results. Yeah, that seems like the way to go. Yeah. So, but I just love that they they have to acknowledge, and this is part of being a good scientist, said very broadly, it's part of the scientific method to try and isolate variables. Yes. So obviously they have to acknowledge that our genetically altered garlic is not the same thing that the Anglo-Saxons would be using. Yeah, even if we hadn't been playing around with crossbreeding for so long, like we would not have the same cultivars as they did a thousand years ago. Oh, exactly. And so it's like if you've ever seen like an original or original or the early sheaves of corn versus the corn that we have today. It's mm-hmm. two totally different foods. So that being said, they talk about that. They also talk about what kind of wines to use, so on and so forth. But I thought that was very interesting that they, you, you know, they did think about this stuff um, and how it how it would work. So they also acknowledged that the preparation of recipes well in advance of their uses may be taken as evidence for the leech books used by a specialist practitioner rather than as a guide to self treatment. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It's it's made for a professional. Oh yeah. Which I think is also really important to acknowledge because this isn't. An old wives' tale. It's not your grandma's remedy. This is stuff that was written down and you went to a physician for this stuff. Although a lot of them might have come from grandmothers. Yes, very true. So, their results, especially for the brass bowl remedy, they state, quote, None of the remedies that we created showed significant antimicrobial activity. In fact, the single ingredients that showed some slight antimicrobial activity on their own, such as the ox gall, lost their effectiveness when combined in the recipe. Oh no. The recipe takes antimicrobial ingredients and probably by letting them sit for so long in the brass pot, turns them into an ineffective mix. So it doesn't work. So it doesn't work, which I thought was interesting, or at least in this recipe, the antimicrobial properties are negated. What is interesting is that there is some ingredients that do help. Mostly, not because of the mixing, but just because garlic works. Mm. So it's more the inherent ingredient than it is that they're actually mixed up together. So 
They say, quote, our results do not suggest that these remedies were any more useful than the eye salve for some other ones. The ivy, juice, and henbane remedies were completely ineffective. The use of henbane in leech book remedies was probably related more to the plant's potential anesthetic and psychoactive properties than to the antibacterial elements of it which makes sense. Although the egg, honey, pepper remedy was ineffective against E. coli and S. mutans and S. aureus, it was somewhat effective against M. smegmatis. However, egg film alone or honey alone were also partially effective. Egg white contains the enzyme lysozyme, which breaks down bacterial cell walls and could have been responsible for the observed antimicrobial effect. So what's interesting here is that while the henbane wouldn't work for antibacterial or antimicrobial issues, it mm. worked for other issues, oh, yeah. like the anesthetic. Or the honey and the egg white individually also are partially effective. So when they were combined, they did work. So they come to the conclusion that people would have either recovered or gotten worse or died mostly due to their own immune systems. However, I did think that it was extraordinarily interesting that some of these remedies would work, like the honey and the egg white and the egg film. So those would actually work. And it's like, for instance, if you have a really bad, what was it, like a tick bite or something, or a bug bite or something, if you take chamomile, like a chamomile tea bag, and you put it in the fridge that brings the swelling down. The chamomile helps and the cold helps. So, I assume you have to then take it out of the fridge and put it on the bug bite. You don't just put it in yes. the fridge and that takes away <laughs> the venom. Automatically, it's a charm. No, you do have to put it on the affected area, but it does help. And it helps. It's similar to aloe. If you put aloe on a burn, it helps heal it. So is that a remedy? Yes. Is it also just the natural properties of the plant? Yes. So there's some remedies in the leech book which took things that would have worked and totally neutralized them because you don't leave stuff sitting out in a pot for several days. Yeah. But there's other ingredients and other remedies which would have worked effectively. So I thought that was very interesting and I thought it would be a good good reading for the leech's corner today since we have just talked about these and we were both questioning like why would this work why wouldn't if this worked i think a lot of it does come from honestly probably from grandma's remedy book where you know grandma's like oh if you have a headache take willow bark and the leech is like great willow cures headaches we will make a bath out of it and yeah. thus it doesn't work anymore right right things are lost in transmission but they still know, like, this plant can help with this thing. We, we've just forgotten how we're, what we're supposed to do with it. Or we don't quite understand why it works, so maybe mm -hmm. we're applying it wrong. Right, right. Or this works, this works, that works. So if we smush them all together, then it'll all work. Yeah. Probably not. That's not quite how we want to do it. Now, what I want them to test is, will henbane candles cure toothworms? That would be a really good one to test. Unfortunately, I think finding someone with toothworms would be a harder problem than finding a henbane candle. But really, we just need candle. to find an undergrad and some worms, and we can figure it out from there. This is true. This is very true. Any undergrads out there who are willing, let us know. And anyone who's checking on my IRB certification, I never said that. <laughs> 
Yeah, probably not great to give a freshman some toothworms, but <laughs> but yeah, that's not going to go well on a review board. No. Not a good idea, but it is interesting to see that they do test some of the remedies and they do use like actual microbial dishes and and they did test this to see whether it would mm-hmm. work. So, you can take these remedies and bring them into the modern scientific method to determine their effectiveness, at least to some degree. Yeah. They made their own wine for this, which I was very impressed by. That is awesome. Although I've heard that making wine is actually easier than making beer. It just it's just harder to make really? wine that tastes good. That's fair. And yeah. if your primary purpose is not to, you know, drink it. Yeah. Then and like wine wine's an antiseptic anyway. Yeah. So I mean that already has a lot of beneficial qualities to it. Grapes ferment easy because they they often have wild yeast just living on the skin. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's even easier to make mead. In my undergrad, a couple people in my dorm made a batch of mead in their closet. It was actually quite good. Amazing. Amazing. I know some people here who are doing that with kombucha. Just got got kombucha in the closet. Just keep going with it. Anything that can be made by amateurs in a dorm room closet, I think, qualifies as very easy to make. Fair. All right. Well, there we go. There is our little scientific, or jump into science this week (laughs) for the leech book. Yes. All right. Anything else to cover? I don't think so. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. In exchange for coming on our podcast, we have one, one request. You have to let us give you toothworms and then try to cure them with a candle. <laughs> <laughs>